0: Well folks, it's time to kick it old school, uh, so you can feel cool, <laughs> give it to
1: me baby, <laughs> baby, <laughs> yeah. Welcome back to the show, very excited to have our guest here today, Aubrey DeGray, thanks so much for joining us here today.
0: My pleasure, thanks for having me
1: yeah it seems like you've been uh around the uh the idea of longevity for for quite a while now i've been following you for it feels like almost like a decade at this point point. and you are uh, i'm really excited to get you on because it's didn't i didn't find a lot of recent interviews that you've done in the past couple of years i'm not sure if uh you're just more focused and heads down on the work but uh i'm excited to hear what's been new with you and what some of the latest and uh, latest research has been?
0: Oh, well, I mean, things have been going pretty well, actually. I guess for the past three or four years, the main thing that has changed, that's been a bit of a transition, is that we have progressed to the point where the private sector is really excited about rejuvenation biotechnology. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And that was always going to be something that only happened after the scientific case was pretty much uh, you know, um, settled. Uh, so certainly uh, you know, 20 years ago, when I first started talking about damage repair as the way to go to actually bring aging under comprehensive medical control, it was very controversial within the expert community. And it probably took me a decade to fix that, you know, to, 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 to get the idea um, understood and accepted But now it's completely orthodox and mainstream. So, what? Yeah, so what happened was that investors started to get interested. Of course, we're talking typically about very early stage angel investors, seed investors, uh, but it has meant that a lot of the relevant technologies have been able to progress a lot faster because, of course, they've been able to attract a lot more dollars. And, uh, you know, financial resources is really the rate limiter on all of this. And so, at Sense Research Foundation itself, we have transitioned to a business model that is more or less one of working on projects for as long as it takes as a non-profit uh, until investors start to show some interest, and then spinning those projects out as startup companies. We've done that half a dozen times in the past few years. Mm-hmm. Um, and in addition to that, we work very closely with dozens and dozens of um, of other companies that have sprung up in our space independently of us, and that are also doing really valuable work. So yeah, that's the big change that's occurred.
1: That's great. That's great. And I just want to give people some context. We do a lot of intros before the interview itself, but just want to give some people context on what you're doing. So you're a gerontologist, you have a nonprofit called Sens, which we'll go into, and you're currently the VP of new tech development at the AgeX therapeutics. And you've just been all around all around, uh, obviously, really evangelizing uh, longevity and the new tech that's involving um, but I, you know, I think it'd be good to get an idea, just because I'd be, I'd be curious to know your kind of origins of, of the and the fascination of longevity and how that really sprung, and when that happened really for you.
0: Yeah, uh, fascination is not really the right word, actually. Um, what's uh, more accurate is that um, ever since uh, my earliest days. Uh, I don't know when, it was completely obvious to me that ageing was the number one problem for humanity, uh, the most serious problem, the thing that caused the most suffering and so on, and that, therefore, something needed to be done about it. Uh, And from a pretty early age, like when I was, I don't know, 10 or something, I also knew that I myself, (coughs) (coughs) what I wanted to do with my life was to make a difference to the world, to make as much difference as possible, and that was what led me to go into scientific um, areas but the two things did not intersect at first and the reason they didn't was because it was so obvious to me that aging was the number one problem that I didn't even consider the possibility that other people might not agree with that. Um, I thought you know everyone's going to think less and so uh, biologists are going to be working on it and it's not going to be something that I can make a significant contribution to. Whereas when I was, I'm going to say 15, I started programming and found I was pretty good at it. So I decided, okay, this is something where I might be able to actually make a significant contribution. And the problem that I chose to work on was not the problem of aging. It was the problem of work. The fact that, you know, people have to spend so much of their time doing stuff that they would not do unless they were being paid for it. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we need more automation. So I wanted to work in artificial intelligence research. The result was I did my undergrad degree in computer science and I did indeed work in artificial intelligence research for several years after that. But during that time, while I was doing perfectly well in that area, I um, met and married a biologist. And she was a lot older than me. She was already a full professor at UC San Diego, actually. And um, so through her, I first of all learned a lot of biology, but also Gradually began to realize that we were never talking about aging and eventually I started asking questions And it turned out that actually she wasn't interested in aging She thought that it was rather unimportant and so on And I said, said well, okay, hang on, um, why? And she said, well, you know, it's just decay, isn't it? You know, what fundamental truths about the universe are you going to learn by studying decay? And I would say, well, sure, but, but you know, there's a bit of a problem there, isn't it? Because it's like it's bad for you um, and, and she would say, well, sure, but that's not my problem and I would say, well, it kind of is, and <laughs> um, and that would be as far as we would get. And so after a couple of further years, probably 94, 95 kind of time, I decided that, you know, this just won't do, um, uh, you know, because I was finding out that it wasn't just her, that all the biologists I was meeting felt the same way. Um, so I thought, well, I've got to switch fields, really, you know, because I was wrong about the assumption that everyone's going to be working on aging who's any good at it. Um, and I realized that the very few biologists who were working on aging were really not going about it very, very well, as far as I, was, I could see. So, yeah, so I switched fields. I was in a very fortunate position to be able to do that pretty much seamlessly because I had a job that was very undemanding, and gave me a lot of spare time, as well as access to the University of Cambridge for, you know, uh, libraries and so on. So I was able to essentially just repurpose my spare time and create an entire new career for myself. Hmm. Um, and the rest is history. But as you can see, it wasn't so much that I was fascinated by aging. It was just like it was obviously something that needed to be fixed. And, uh, the, and to this day, it's, you know, still it's stunning to me that so few people see it that way. Of course, I understand yeah. why so few people say it that way analytically. The reason is psychological that people have to, you know, they have to put aging out of their minds because it's so horrible that um, they've got to kind of, you know, pretend that it's some kind of blessing in disguise or whatever in order just to get on with that miserably short life and make the best of it rather than being preoccupied by this terrible thing that's going to happen to them.
1: I want to make it actionable for people that are listening just so that it's not going in one ear and out the other just because I, I think most people they don't really understand the, the biological terms and, and the exact science to it. Are there things that you recommend that people do just in their daily lives that could potentially extend the lifespan, that could target maybe not all seven of these, but certainly a couple of these by adjusting their lifestyle? What are some of the major things that people should do today that will help them get there?
0: Yeah, of course, people would love me to have an answer to that question, and that's why everybody asks it. But the precise reason why we are putting so much effort and energy into developing these therapies that don't yet exist because the things that do exist don't work right um at the moment you know we we are seeing a slow but steady increase in life expectancy across the world but the reason it's so slow is because basically the things that we do only very only nibble at the edges of the accumulation of damage and the emergence and progression of pathologies late in life that result from that damage the you know, I've told you already about breathing, about how DNA in the mitochondria gets damaged first. That's just one one example of the type of damage that breathing does. Breathing is the single worst thing that you are doing right now for your aging. And the thing is, it's rather non-negotiable. <clears throat> you kind of got to do it. But so, there's
1: different types of breathing that are yeah, better now. No.
0: Yeah, no. Uh, at the end of the day, it's still going to happen. You're still going to breathe. You're still going to have this chemistry going on. Still going to have free radical molecules being created as a side effect of that those are going to damage dna and damage proteins and so on it's going to make you accumulate damage it just is and we have only one way to fix that which is to repair the damage which is what we're trying to develop now of course i'm not saying that things we can do today are completely useless there's a reason why we have actually obtained a small increase in life expectancy which is a great deal better than nothing um over the past decade. Um, So, so for example, you know, there's been, of course, very significant advances in medicine that have pushed back heart disease and cancer and so on. And that's wonderful. Um, It's uneven. So we haven't pushed back Alzheimer's disease much. And of course, that's why we have an Alzheimer's epidemic right now. But it's all happening. So that's good. Just it's not happening fast enough. The things that one can do today oneself, to um you know, to, get, to, to to postpone one's late life health problems as much as possible are unfortunately very boring they are basically do what your mother told you to don't get seriously overweight don't smoke you know have a reasonably balanced varied diet mm-hmm. over and above that there's more or less nothing you can do certainly there's plenty of ways to shorten your life by not doing those things i just mentioned but you know i don't claim originality for any of that what are your stuff. thoughts
1: on like intermittent fasting and yeah. and yeah,
0: yeah. So all of these lifestyle and diet um, things that people talk about a lot are probably slightly beneficial for for some people, perhaps even for most people, but I emphasise slightly. So, for example, intermittent fasting and indeed all of the variations on that theme, whether it's the original calorie restriction idea or whether it's drugs that trick the body into thinking it's in a famine when it isn't, you know, like resveratrol or rapamycin or metformin. All of these things are are essentially stimulating changes in gene expression in ourselves that are the same as what happens when we're actually in a famine you know, in, in prehistory, right? And that's that those genetic pathways, those responses to nutrient intake have evolved for that purpose. The problem is that long-lived species like humans do not actually obtain much benefit from that because long-lived species, you know, live a lot longer than any famine already. The one, The species that we use in the laboratory to understand aging have the problem that they are very, very short-lived. You know, mice live a couple of years, nematodes live three or four weeks. You know, these species can gain a hell of a lot by essentially adjusting their metabolic priorities in response to the amount of their nutrient availability so as to do more maintenance and less reproduction and so on. And sure, we see huge changes. You know, you can get mice to live 40 or 50% longer than normal in this yeah. way. You can get nematodes to live 10 times longer than normal in this way, right? But unfortunately, as I say, the longer the longer live the organism, the less the effect. So people shouldn't get carried away with this. Yes, it's better than nothing. Yes, do it if you can. But do not think of it as the holy grail. At the end of the day, we've got to get this other work done in order to really give what we actually want, which is never to get sick however long ago you were born.
1: Yeah, yeah I think you said in an interview that human beings are not living that much longer. It's somewhere around one or two years per decade, which means you're right, like those things are making small effects, but probably a lot of it is because of just better nutrition and, you know, small advancements in technology around that.
0: Right. In the industrialized world, even that slow increase is leveling off Um, because ultimately, as you say, it is driven by things that we've done. You know, the... um, the main driver over the past over the period since let's say World War II has been the um, improvement in prosperity that has led to improved nutrition, especially nutrition really early in life. prenatal nutrition matters a lot, it turns out mm-hmm. um, because that 's a point in life where cells are dividing really fast, lots and lots of stuff is happening, and just small chemical uh, deficiencies like slight deficiency in some micronutrients can lay down damage that 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 kind of exhibits a positive feedback loop throughout life. So you end up being biologically older than you would if you had had optimal nutrition before you were even born. Um, and so even though, you know, people haven't really been thinking about it that way or trying to do that, just it's a beneficial side effect of having been wealthier and being fed better. Of course, before that, there was another wave which was caused by our ability to bring infections under control, right? Um, You know, so before 200 years ago, even in the wealthiest countries in the world, more than one third of babies would die before the age of one. Right. And there was lots of death in childbirth and so on. And by World War Two, that had completely gone. That had been done. Right. So um, you couldn't you couldn't do it again. You couldn't raise life expectancy in the industrialized world any further by doing more of that. Mm -hmm. And we're getting to that same leveling off stage, the diminishing returns point with regard to prosperity and nutrition now as well. So the next big leap is not going to happen unless and until we get the therapies of the sort of the damage repair type that I'm describing to you today.
1: Do you think that um people are over optimizing? Because it's a it's an interesting point you made. And I know you you love drinking beer, I do as well. And there are certain people that certainly try to over optimize, I guess you could say, for better or for worse, where they're really trying to make sure they're eating the right things throughout their entire lives. But if you're saying that it's not really going to make a huge impact, then are people over-optimizing what they're eating and should people just let go some once in a while and enjoy the food that they want if they're not going to live longer?
0: <clears throat> One can't generalize that, you see, because sure. so much of this revolves around differences between people in how their metabolism basically works, you know, what their genetics are that, that predisposes them to obesity, for example, or... Uh, how easily they become full and satiated. Um, And also, of course, one absolutely needs to take into account the the mind-body connection, so to speak. You know, the more you're pushing yourself beyond what you find easy to do, the more you may put yourself under stress, psychological stress, which creates elevated levels of stress hormones, which go throughout the whole body and which have, a bad effect. It's an accelerating effect on the accumulation of various types of damage. So you can totally do yourself harm by that kind of means. Um, but as I say, it's something that is completely different for each individual. So one can't generalize.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I look at myself where, you know, just being an Asian American and hearing the fact that when I'm 40 years old, I'm probably going to look exactly like this. And my mom is probably going to look like, you know, she's looks like she's basically 30 or 35 at this point. And she's, Nearing her 60s, and it—I'd be curious to know your thoughts in terms of this misconception that people have in terms of the external of the way they look and how they're actually what their actual bodies are functioning like, based on how they look from a cosmetic perspective. Because you're right, like Asians don't really look like they age, but I'm not sure if that correlates to how we actually are aging in our bodies.
0: Sure. Yeah, I mean. <clears throat> Well, first of all, I think, you know, how someone looks to someone of the same ethnicity is very different from how someone looks to someone of another ethnicity, you know. So, yeah. Um, uh, so actually, it's interesting that you say that um, in your, you know, in your estimation, people uh, who are also Asian look younger than um, they're real age to you. Um, nevertheless, the um, the real answer is that. Asians live, you know, they have good longevity. Japan is, of course, the out of large countries, anyway, the country that does the best. Um, other countries that do well, Singapore, Hong Kong, and so on. You know, this is good in the countries that don't do so well. Mainly, it's because they don't have the same prosperity yet, but they're catching up. Mm. So there may be something there, but equally, we have to look closely at the magnitude of the difference. So you know. For example, people laugh at the U.S. a huge amount because of its life expectancy that, you know, it's only like number 45 or something in the league table. It's like one of the lowest countries in the OECD. Right. But uh, despite the fact that the U.S. spends far more on medical care per head than any other country. Right. Um, So people say, you know, this is an indictment of private health care and so on and so forth. But actually, it's a bit unfair because. If you look at the actual numbers the difference between the life expectancy of the u.s and the life expectancy of japan is only five years right um hmm. you know what's so, the
1: u.s is 75 for for men and or for yeah, women I, I and
0: yeah it's about five years difference between okay. um, us and japan so you know you can't really make a big deal out of that i don't think um and what this says is that the underlying range of health conditions that we see is the same everywhere and they accumulate everywhere at an accelerating rate throughout life. Now, you may see quite big differences in the proportion of people who have heart attack on their death certificates you know, in different countries or who have Alzheimer's. But really, you know, these are just tips of the iceberg of ageing. It's um, a real problem right now that people, that the societies have decided that natural causes, in other words, aging itself is not a cause of death. Um, you know, and everyone's got to have some particular so-called disease because it's really a misnomer. Things that are age-related diseases are not diseases at all. They're aspects of aging that we've chosen to give disease-like names to. And... Um, mm-hmm yes there are some differences in the proportions of different things in different cultures but really everyone dies at more or less the same age and they've got more or less the same types of damage accumulating in their bodies at more or less the same rates causing more or less the same pathology
1: gotcha gotcha um and, and given that you know for for most people they're they're trying to optimize i know you're not a big supplement person but you also got a person like ray Kurzweil who takes 200 supplements uh for that setting so do you do you do you think that's something that is useful in in just in your honest opinion i know you don't want to give general advice on that in that kind of sense but
0: actually this is this is a perfect example illustrating what i was saying about how you can't generalize because the whole point here is that i'm a lucky guy you know i was uh, i've always been biologically by any measure much younger than i um you know, than I, the, the, than my chronological age. Whereas Ray is very much at the other end of that spectrum. He's mm. drawn a lot of short straws. You know, he, um, he has a lot of cardiovascular disease in his family. And, um, perhaps even more tellingly, he came down with type two diabetes in his 30s, which is, you know, not unheard of, especially these days with the obesity epidemic, but he's never had that problem. Um, <clears throat> and, <clears throat> excuse me, yeah. um, and so, he, you know, he tried the traditional regime against diabetes back then, and it didn't work for him. So he essentially developed his own. And the um, result was he ended up being able to bring his own problem under very complete control, even he's in he's seventeen now or something, and he, um, as, as far as I know, doesn't have a trace of diabetes. So that's wonderful. Um, and he does it with, as you say, a very large number of supplements. But this in no way says that... Everybody would benefit from all of this in fact, people who are at my end of the spectrum who are doing well we've got to be very much of the mind that if you don't, ain't broke, don't fix it. We've got to absolutely um you know be cautious and um uh, and take you know and hesitate to um to take supplements or whatever, even if those supplements have been shown. To be mildly beneficial for most people because even then they might not be beneficial for the best for the, for the luckiest people like me. Hmm.
1: So you're saying there are downsides because my, my understanding of taking supplements and let's say I understand like vitamin D is, is like something that most people are deficient in, so I generally take more than I should. and when I do, my understanding is that you can just urinate and if you can, you can remove those if there are extra that remains in your body. Uh, are there downsides to something like this in taking supplements? Uh,
0: you absolutely can't generalize. Again, I'm sorry, you just can't generalize. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Sure. Every 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 person's metabolism is engaged in a constant process of very highly multidimensional optimization of the concentrations of different molecules inside and outside cells and in, in subcellular compartments and so on. And that optimization is you know is in response to what's coming into the body right so you can throw it off balance and of course the body is good at laughing in your face and getting on with what it was doing anyway mm-hmm. but um only up to a point so antioxidants for example so way back in the 1950s when denham harman first suggested that aging was mainly driven by free radicals um, the obvious intervention to slow aging down was antioxidants, chemicals that react with um, free radicals before, it, before the free radicals react with anything important, um, and basically what's called scavenge them, and they didn't work. They had some beneficial effects on the average lifespan of mice, but that really just was by um, protecting the mice from early death, from infections and so on. Uh, it didn't have any significant effect on the maximum lifespan, on how long um, uh, mice would live that were already doing well. Um, and, you know, there were lots and lots of discussions about why this would be, but ultimately what it comes down to is that the body was dialing down its own antioxidant machinery, the inbuilt genetically based antioxidant machinery, to compensate for the higher levels of dietary antioxidants. And the reason it was doing that was because the free radicals have positive roles as well. Essentially, evolution has had to live with free radicals for billions of years, and it's made the best of a bad job and found positive uses for them as well. So it doesn't want them to be present at zero concentration. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's many other examples. Vitamin E, for example, it turns out that if you have too, vitamin, too much vitamin E, it's bad for you because it can act as a pro-oxidant if there's too much of it, rather than an antioxidant. You know, and, yeah. and the chemistry is somewhat understood, but it doesn't really matter whether you understand it all you need to understand is the 40,000 foot fat that the body is engaged in this optimization process. And sometimes you can make it harder for the body to do that by taking things that seem as though they ought to be good for you.
1: Yeah. yeah. I mean, it seems like the idea of just making it too general is where the danger is, even though, yeah, there may not be a lot of downsides, but uh, where where is the, I don't know if you're following the trends of like personalized nutrition and being able to have that for people in a mainstream way. Is that something that's pretty close in terms of what's available?
0: Um, Well, I mean, it already exists. Of course, the more information you have and the more intelligently you assimilate that information, the more you can personalize your nutrition, as well as, of course, lifestyle. Um, But, of course, there's a certain amount of garbage in, garbage out. In other words, we are hamstrung by our ignorance of this whole system about of, of how little we understand about how the body really works so we may you know, even if we're following all of the right um ideas you know in principle it may still not work
1: hmm. okay so even though it is personalized you're, you're saying it's not going to do a lot of damage
0: <clears throat> well, It's not going to do a lot of good and yeah. it may do a little bit of damage The only generalization one can make is pay attention to your body. If you try something, especially something experimental, you know you've got to monitor yourself very closely. Mm -hmm. See what it's really doing to your body.
1: Gotcha, gotcha. Uh, And just to kind of close it off, one thing I did want to talk to you about is the, you know, as a as a way to contrast this this you know this push that you're doing in terms of helping humans live longer. I wanted to know your thoughts on. The fact the there are some cons of people living longer, and you've talked a little bit about this, and there's things like overpopulation, climate legislation, all these things that are happening. Is that something you're you're not really too focusing on, just because there's just it's a it's a it's a problem that you're going to deal with? Imagine when it comes, and you're just going to focus on the work that you're doing.
0: So I focus on it a great deal. Um, uh, it, it, I talk, I'm about it. And the reason I do is not because I think it's an actual problem. I don't think we're actually going to have any difficulty handling a post-aging world. The problem is that people think it's going to be a problem, and they use it as an excuse to go slow on the process of actually bringing a post-aging world about. Mm -hmm. You know, I mentioned at the beginning how people have to put aging out of their minds in order to get on with their lives because we don't have these therapies yet. And One way that people do it is just to kind of convince themselves by virtue, just to just to take advantage of the fact that there is so little agreement about what aging even is, even though that's ridiculous, um, you know, to basically pretend that aging is somehow woven into the fabric of the universe in such a way that it is completely inevitable and it's off-limits to medicine. So that's nonsense. But what's perhaps even worse is the alternative way that people put it out of their minds, which is to construct reasons why aging is some kind of blessing in disguise. In other words, why if we didn't have it, there would be other problems that would be so absolutely terrible that we're we're better off having people get sick and die, Um, which is, again, complete nonsense. And what happens is, you know, people will come up with some beginning of an argument like, oh, dear, where will we put all the people or, oh, dear, weren't dictators live forever or something like that. And then they will instantly switch off their brains completely and completely refuse to listen to any possibility that we might have thought about, you know, and there might actually be an answer that completely rebuts the suggestion. So, of course, I, um, you know, I spend my life, you know, describing in this painstaking way, you know, exactly why this is not not going to be a problem and so on, which, for whichever problem we're talking about. And that's fine so far, but um, the thing is, Uh, I also have to explain that you've got to have a sense of proportion about this. Like, um, you know, you've got to actually not just ignore the fact that aging is quite bad. And, you know, if you haven't got some argument that says that it's likely that such and such a problem created by the elimination of aging would be even worse than aging itself, then just don't waste my time. Mm. Right. Um, And similarly, of course, the choice thing, the fact that any decision we might make to the effect that yes such such a problem really would be worse than aging it than aging it today is based on the information we have today and in the future when these therapies might or might not exist people will have other better information and they'll be able to make that decision better so we have a moral obligation to develop these therapies as soon as possible so as to give humanity of the future the choice yeah of how to do this yeah Um, so so yeah I mean I um I do spend my life uh, on this, I and mean, it's a pain in the ass. but... Um, but it's <laughs> well, we thank you for it, Aubrey. Of course, of course, I don't have to convince everybody, but I do no, have to don't. convince enough people so that the work actually gets done.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I, I, I like the word you... That's much
0: easier said than done, because, because, you know, there are plenty of visionaries out there who totally understand that this is the world's most important problem, and there are plenty of uh, uh, there's a reasonable subset of those visionaries who have deep pockets and who can perfectly well fund this stuff, but out of those people, there's all manner of people who all manner of reasons why they don't do it. Like they are too addicted to making money quickly, or and they don't like giving it away to research, or for example, um, they care about something else first, like you know, malaria in sub-Saharan Africa. And I'm not saying we shouldn't give money to cure malaria or to power in Africa, of course not, but it's not a zero sum game. but the other thing is they even th- 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 no no person is an island, they worry about things like being laughed at by their fellow billionaires down the marina, and they worry about you know their wives being pissed off with them for spending money on something that they consider frivolous there are I know of multiple actual examples of people who would totally have given us money that would have. Multiplied our budget by many fold and hastened the defeat of aging by a lot, mm-hmm. but they couldn't because their wife told them not to, and that's mm-hmm. quite frustrating.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I like the word you used about choice. Is is the, the whole point is people can decide whether it's legislation or whether it's it's people. They can decide not to go with the technology because they see greater consequences from overpopulation or whatever it might be. Which is, which is totally true, but you're really just presenting an option in the table that, listen, if we can solve these issues, then at least you want something there if we can actually extend people's lifespan. Um, and it, it seems like funding is really the main obstacle here in terms of getting this off the ground. And in a capitalism world, it's this kind of catch-22, right, which is people, as you said, the people that have high net worth individuals or corporations they probably want to figure out a way to make some money off of this if this was supposed to work. And yep. the exciting thing, it seems like its you're, you're on the cusp of making something that is getting closer to getting funding from these corporations that, uh, that would allow it to really have this tipping point. Because it really is going to be a tipping point, I would imagine, where if you can find a way to get this to the mainstream audience, then people are going to see... A way to make money off of it which
0: yeah just, yeah, yeah. I, I wouldn't exactly call it a tipping point it is a process mm-hmm. and that's really why I led with that early on when during our conversation and talked about how the private sector is emerging here because you don't need to convince every investor either a lot of investors are in this because they kind of you know they're willing to take perhaps a less profitable option so long as it's got some chance of being profitable uh, because they really like the mission, you know, the, the, the overall humanitarian goal. And the more progress we make, every teeny little increment in the science bring, that brings us closer to the goal constitutes a de-risking step, right? That makes it that much more likely that investing now will actually uh, pay dividends down the road. So that's why these, these investors have come along. That's why we've started to be able to make an actual industry out of this. And it's no longer just a, a non-profit thing. But here's the problem because it's a divide and conquer strategy with many different types of damage that need to be repaired. Some of these therapies are inevitably more difficult to develop than others. And that means that some of them get to the point of investability before others. And the ones that do get to that point, I'm not going to say their financial problems are over, but they are definitely greatly diminished. You know, another digit on their funding on the funding for the project. Arises pretty much the minute that the project gets transferred from the non-profit to the for-profit um, context But you've still got the more difficult things which are equally vital. We can't do this all in one go Any one type of damage can perfectly happily kill you on its own more or less on schedule However, well we fix all the others, right? So, um, we've absolutely got to To fix the most difficult parts and that's why sense research foundation and nonprofits still exists. It's actually if anything becomes harder for us to raise the money to keep going, even at the suboptimal rates that we currently are, uh, because a lot of the people who were don- who have been donating to us over the years, especially the wealthier ones, tend to be people who became wealthy through the private sector and they believe in capitalism and investment and so on. They're psychologically, they are investors first and donors second. And now that they have the opportunity to invest in some of the easier, lower hanging fruits, um, it's actually, you know. More difficult to persuade them to continue to donate so we need to fix that
1: what's the difficult one that you guys are facing right now that is hard to get funding
0: well there's no one I mean we still have a wide variety of projects that we pursue but yeah. so one of them that we're talking about that I mentioned earlier is the um, uh, relocation the uh, creation of backup copies of the mitochondrial DNA in the nucleus um, that's very, very difficult. It's absolutely necessary. Uh, it's going okay. It's going, we're making good progress, um, but it's not quite at the investability point yet, and it needs to be there before we actually um, you know, can, can spin it out, necessarily. So that's got fi- to be fixed. Um, another one, we're funding a group at uh, Albert Einstein College of Medicine in New York looking at stem cell therapy for Alzheimer's disease. So that's a really hard problem, essentially because the stem cells that you inject into the brain, in order for them to do their job, they have to go to the correct place in the brain. And in the case of Alzheimer's, that means all over the brain. Um, uh, so they have to basically migrate before they become neurons. The precursors of the neurons have to do that. Um, and, uh, yeah, so um, we're what what, funding work that allows this to happen, but it's early stage, it's not investable yet. So, you know, that's just a couple of examples.
1: Gotcha, gotcha. And do you think that cryogenic freezing is something that could, uh, take a mainstream route for people to have access to? Right now, I think it's like a couple hundred thousand dollars for people to, for people to do that, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's actually less than that. It's like, you know, 50 or $80,000 if you only get your head frozen. But, um, but yeah, it's a lot of money. Um and that's of course because it's not paid for by health insurance or everything, which is insane. I mean, remember the whole point of cryonics, the whole the whole basis of it, is that we don't actually know when somebody is actually dead. All we have is this really pretty arbitrary definition of clinical of legal death, which is a binary thing so that because society seems more comfortable with the idea that people are either alive or dead and not somewhere in between, even though Biologists and medics have always known that actually death is this You know process that takes a certain amount of time and Essentially all that all that's really going on is that after your heart stops and oxygen stops being pumped around that you um You know you end up having an accumulation of damage in the body in various places um, At a more a much more rapid rate than what was happening before your heart stopped Um, but still it's a you know it's a finite rate and the reason why um, why the definition the legal definition of death has changed over the years is because people have improved you know medicine has improved and people have been brought back from a state that historically it was thought to be impossible to bring them back from and it became a little embarrassing that there were so many people walking around quite happily and healthily who had been declared legally dead right because what is that- legally death well, right now, it's involved, it mainly involves brain death, so the loss mm. of activity of the brain. Even that's questionable. You know, people, kids especially, if they fall through ice on a frozen lake, for example, in many cases now, people being fished out after something like an hour under the ice, you know, um, and because they were cold, of course, not cryogenic temperatures, but still pretty cold, um, they that they accumulated more damage in their bodies and brains only quite slowly and an hour was not long enough to be problematic. They got warmed up and heart started beating again and they are perfectly fine. Um, So, you know, they had to change the definition. They couldn't just call it cardiac arrest anymore. Um, And that's going to happen. That's going to carry on happening. So the only difficulty, the only reason why the medical profession have continued to disparage cryonics with the result, of course, that society in general doesn't take it seriously and doesn't put proper money into it, is that there is additional damage done by the cryopreservation process. So you you're alive and you're accumulating damage really really slowly, and eventually the damage causes you to be legally dead because your heart stopped and so on. And your um, you know damage accumulates more rapidly. But if we freeze you really fast after that, then that process of damage accumulation is arrested completely so that's wonderful but unfortunately the freezing process incorporates new damage that wasn't there when we started the cryopreservation process and historically when cryonics was first um, developed in the 70s the amount of additional damage was absolutely immense so much that it was very definitely completely impossible to take someone like that and warm them up again and fix them up even with an absolutely amazing amount of progress in future yet to be developed medicine. Right. Um, It was still worth doing in some people's minds because people were saying, "Okay, well, we can just kind of create a clone or well, not really a clone, but a mental clone. In other words, we could basically um, slice and scan the brain at really, really, really high resolution and extract from it the information on what someone actually was, you know, their personality and so on, and then kind of recreate that in a new body. But for a lot of people that's not really the same thing as reviving them as keeping the same person alive so that wasn't good enough then about 25 years ago there was this massive advance where people developed something called vitrification which essentially eliminates well over 90 percent of the damage that um would otherwise be done by cryopreservation uh by essentially stopping the formation of ice crystals so that the body becomes a glass and amorphous solid and that's great but it's only 90 percent or so the damage there's still a lot of damage and most people would say that probably that's still too much to be revived it's like you know touch and go maybe in the best possible case you might be able to do it a long time in the future when we're really really good at at repairing damage but people are still not sure so what really matters is to do further research to take another 90 percent or 99 percent off the damage that is still being done even with vitrification and that is happening there's a group that I work closely with that um, have developed really fantastic new technology that can do that. And furthermore, it's technology that is commercially promising, even without cryonics being part of the picture, because it can also be used to preserve organs, solid organs like livers Mm. or heart or kidneys, which, of course, would be fantastic. You could have whole banks of these things, and that would completely solve the enormous problem we have today of shortage of of donor organs for transplant that shortage only doesn't exist because there aren't enough donors not at all it exists because there are because it's so unusual for a donor with a sufficiently compatible immune system to die nearby and that's what needs to happen right now because um uh because if you take an organ out of someone you've only got a few hours before it becomes unusable by virtue of the decay that happens so if we, can, if we can freeze them immediately, then that's not a problem anymore. So yeah, so this is this wow. is a, this, this is technology that you know it's completely outrageous that this technology is having a really hard time getting funded just enough to be developed to a point of actual usability.
1: I mean, that's a game changer. Just oh, being yeah. able to just being able to transform that into your organs. I mean. It's not like, I mean, I I agree with you. I'm surprised that the private healthcare sector, they don't allow that in terms of, I mean, I can kind of imagine a world where people can choose to be buried, they can choose to be cremated, they can choose to be cryogenic frozen.
0: It's not necessarily. It's not a matter of of what's legally allowed. There are very few places in the world in which cryonically um, preservation is is simply not allowed as a means of. you know, disposal of human remains, as it, is, as it is, of course, defined, because these people are defined to be legally dead. Um, uh, the, the problem is not legal permissibility, it's societal acceptance, and therefore the availability of the funding to actually make it happen.
1: Gotcha, gotcha. Well, Aubrey, this has been fascinating. I know you have a hard stop here, so I uh, want to make sure that people can find you online. Where can people go to to Support you from a funding perspective to learn more about your research and everything about yourself.
0: Yeah, we have a nice one-stop shop for all of that, which is of course cent.org, our, um the foundation's website. There's masses and massive information there, written for every kind of audience, from experts all the way through to complete novices. And there's, um, you know, there's also of course a contact form. You can ask questions if anything you can't find on the actual thing. And um, and then of course, yes, there's a nice friendly red donate button. Um so yes, any support will, you know, save life.
1: Thanks for making it all the way to the end of the show. Hope you really enjoyed our guest today and that you took one thing valuable from our conversation. If you haven't already, I would love it if you could leave a quick rating or review on whichever network you're listening to the show and share this episode with one friend if you found it valuable. And if it's something that a friend, a family member, or just someone that you care about could find a little bit of insight from what you learned today. All right, ciao.